0: back to the planet today with Matt Norton. Today is Friday, September 10th, 2021. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa.
1: Nick, how's it going, buddy? Matty, it is going so dang well. What a beautiful day today. It's Friday. (laughs) The day we're all waiting for as soon as it ends. (laughs) I am, my eyes are on the clock from the second that I wake up on Friday. I'm like, okay, come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's listen to a podcast and then let's weekend.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. If you're new here, welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy, all in an easily digestible weekly podcast for you to listen to on your own time. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Before we get started, we wanted to read one more listener review on Apple
1: Podcasts as a thank you for supporting the show. Yes, so Mike underscore Espo4 calls TPT an amazing must-listen podcast and says, don't add this to your list. Take a listen now. Super engaging, easily digestible content, highly informative, and carefully curated. This podcast will give you another reason to look forward to Friday.
0: Hey, Mike, thank you so much. Reviews like this really remind us how rewarding the show is to create, so reading that one definitely put a smile on my face. If you haven't already, please leave a review on the show so we can give you a shout-out on the show as a thank you for listening. If you left us an early review, Don't be afraid to do
1: it again as the show has evolved because maybe your review has evolved as well. All right, so let's go ahead and get into our quick hits for the week. So, this story is from actually about a month ago, but it's an exciting development. So, Tesla says it can now recycle 92% of battery cell materials by Chris Young of Interesting Engineering. Yeah, sometimes I'm always amazed by the fact that. I think we generally have a pretty good
0: finger on the pulse of what's going on in environmental news scene. And sometimes I'll see something where I actually just missed it entirely, like was not even on the radar whatsoever. <laughs> this, this was one of those stories. So Tesla's 2020 impact report came out in August and discussed the company's use of third-party recycling firms to improve its ability to recycle batteries at the end of their useful life cycle. The batteries used for electric vehicles Require mining for several precious metals such as cobalt, lithium, and nickel. The Swedish Environmental Research Institute, known as IVL, reported in late 2019 that lithium ion batteries emit between 134 and 234 pounds, or 61 to 101 kilograms, of carbon dioxide during production. So to be able to recycle and reuse the materials involved in this process would be a critical step towards making electric vehicles not just better for the environment, but really, really good and carbon-free. Opponents of electric vehicles often say, well, they're not producing carbon while you drive them, but what about in production or while you charge them? Better, more advanced recycling solves question one. And as for question two, Being able to charge the battery with electricity from renewable energy takes care of that. So it's interesting, we're at the the forefront of when the electric vehicle space is gonna go from better for the environment compared to gas vehicles to just really good for the environment. In the report, Tesla claims the Tesla battery pack is designed to outlast the vehicle itself. Because of this, few consumer Tesla batteries even those from our nearly 9-year-old Model S cars, have been decommissioned to date. Tesla says that because of this, its battery factories have begun incorporating an in-house closed-loop recycling system that will ensure 100% of Tesla batteries received are recycled and up to 92% of their raw materials reused. The report also confirms that their Gigafactory in Nevada was able to install the first phase of its cell recycling facility in late 2020, and that means the facility is closer to large scale battery recycling. Tesla has suggested the same will be done at its Gigafactories in Germany and Texas, which would increase the company's ability to recycle global manufacturing scrap metals. As we journey from carbon intensive through carbon neutral to carbon free, Positive steps like this are important, and hopefully recycling materials will drive down the cost
1: of electric vehicles. That way more people can drive cleaner in the near future. Right on. Yeah, this has the, been the goal the whole time, get more people to drive electric vehicles, and that's, this is the way to do it. And I'm also looking at uh, mining.com, and there's a quote here that says, there's enough lithium in Nevada for 300 million electric vehicles. I feel like that's a lot, and I guess any percentage helps, but I'm just curious like how,
0: how much of a dent 300 million electric cars puts into the the damage we got to recover.
1: Yeah, I mean, that knocks out the US at least. I mean, that's at the very least we would get, we'd all have electric cars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's get into the next one. So it is from Recharge News where Bernd Radowitz writes, green superpower Denmark plans second gigascale offshore wind to hydrogen plant.
0: I feel like there's been some cool Scandinavian renewable energy news a lot this summer. So for you at home, here is some more. Swiss developer H2 Energy Europe has officially bought a plot in the port of Esbjerg for a one gigawatt electrolyzer. This green hydrogen plant will produce enough fuel for 10,000 trucks, which will provide a substantial reduction in carbon emissions for trucking and transportation. The plant itself will be powered by nearby offshore wind farms. The Danish climate and energy minister, Dan Jorgensen, is quoted as saying new green fuels and hydrogen are crucial for the green society of the future, not only in Denmark, but also in Europe and around the world in regards to the project. Esbjerg has also chosen the location for another offshore wind to hydrogen project, keeping the momentum going. Esbjerg is a prime location for these type of projects because it's located close to the North Sea's offshore wind, and it can export to large industrial areas in Germany and Northern Europe, which helps ease their burden for energy. While hydrogen fuel cars may not be as popular as electric vehicles, they're still an important step in decarbonizing transportation and shipment of goods. So this is just some good
1: Scandinavian news here. Love me some good Scandinavian news. And Uh, Hey, Toyota, did you hear that last line? Hydrogen fuel cars may not be as popular as electric vehicles, but they are important. So keep making them. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. So this story is by Elizabeth Preston of the New York Times, and it is titled Reuniting an Orphan Elephant and Her Mom, Perhaps with DNA and Luck. So if you thought that The story
0: about the elephants leaving the Yunnan province in China and wandering around was going to make for a cool movie. We have another feel good story about elephants right now. (laughs) Comes out of the town of Boromo in Burkina Faso, just north of Ghana, where a two to three month old elephant was found alone and dehydrated in September 2017. Orphan elephants do not typically survive. But this elephant, named Nania, was luckily found within a few days of separating from her family. The people of Boromo, international conservationists, and Nania's best friend, who is a black and white sheep named Wistie, not only helped Nania survive, but thrive. She's now four years old, and conservationists are facing the dilemma of whether or not Nania will be able to return to life in the wild. Reintroduction to the wild can be difficult, and a very oversimplified way of thinking about it would be, think about your dog going into a forest and hunting for its food. They're just simply not used to living in the wild. DNA analysis revealed that Nani has heard of forest elephants, including her mother, may be roaming nearby, so a successful reintroduction to the wild could also mean a reintroduction to her family. The International Union for Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, recognizes forest elephants as their own species of African elephants, apart from savanna elephants, which are larger and more numerous. The IUCN has declared forest elephants as critically endangered, which means that Nania's survival is not just about one beloved elephant here, it's about the species as a whole. Co-chair of the IUCN's African Elephant Specialist Group, Ben Okita, says... Because of the status of these animals in terms of how threatened they are, each individual really matters. Every individual is held dear. The article goes on to break down how Nania was rescued and how she was taken care of, including school children visiting her every day. Nania would sometimes chase after them to play, so the town kind of rallied around her as the symbolic mascot. In February of 2019, A fenced pasture was completed for her inside a nearby national park, which included a stable where she could stay at night, and she needed space to learn how to be an elephant, really. Now her only human interaction includes four keepers who take turns in shifts of two for one week at a time. Her keepers roam the park with her for six to eight hours per day. That way she can learn where to find food and where to find water, and she can learn how to bathe in water or mud. And I know everyone was about to ask the next really important question. Well, what happened to Wisty? Nania still lives with her best friend, Wisty the sheep. Oh my gosh. A team of scientists from the International Fund for Animal Welfare took DNA samples of some of the 40 wild elephants that passed through the national park where Nania is now living. And they found that one of the elephants is almost definitely Nania's mother. Next comes the struggles of reintroduction. Nania fled the first time she saw wild elephants, and the team working with her are not aware of mothers and their calves reuniting after this long. So they're hoping that as Nania continues to grow, her confidence will also grow and she will be able to rejoin a herd. And while we don't know what happens next with this story,
1: we're rooting for you, Nania. I am Nania's number one fan, and if this doesn't get made into a movie, I'm going to freak out. Because if Jack and Jill can be a movie, no offense to Adam Sandler, I love Adam Sandler, <laughs> but if Jack and Jill can be made, why are we not going to make this movie? I think we got to wait
0: and see what the outcome is. Two, two things we're hoping for here on the planet today. We're hoping for a good reintroduction where she gets to be reunited with a herd. Yep. Ideally, it's her family, and we get the nice mother-daughter reunion, but we'll take any herd accepting her.
1: And number two... I want Christopher Nolan directing a movie about it. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed. Stamp. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the next one. So this one is from Reuters, and they reported last week that the Biden administration aims to cut costs for solar and wind projects on public land. So this story
0: itself is kind of quick, but it brings up a good contrast to President Biden's announcement after surveying the damage done in New York and New Jersey by Hurricane Ida. The president said that the nation and the world are in peril from climate change, and while we could go into much greater detail about the significance of that statement, we felt it was better to talk about this announcement from August 31st. That way our listeners don't just hear, okay, great, we're in grave danger, and that's the main takeaway of this story. The Biden administration plans to make federal lands cheaper for access to solar and wind power developers, according to Reuters. The news comes after lobbyists made a huge push to get the rates and fees lowered for renewable projects, that way investors would be more likely to be interested. As it stands now, it's cheaper to lease federal land for oil and gas drilling, but this plan could make the upfront cost of renewable energy on federal land cheaper, which would also reflect the true cost when accounting for carbon pollution. Since the Biden administration plans to decarbonize the energy sector by 2035, making it cheaper and easier to construct renewable energy projects on federal land would significantly help achieve this goal. For reference, some solar projects pay $971 per acre per year to rent the land they develop on, and then they have to pay over $2,000 per megawatt of power capacity per year. Wind projects tend to be cheaper to rent land for, but the power capacity fee is $3,800. To rent land for oil drilling, companies are charged $1.50 to $2 per acre per year. And then they have to pay 12.5% in royalties once they're able to extract the oil. So sure, the royalty fee is a little bit higher, but look, I mean, that's a $970 difference per acre, $969 at worst per acre. So- The difference in the cost is just astronomical. Some more reference, to rent private land for renewable energy projects, the fees can be under $100 per acre, and they have no power capacity fees. So it's no surprise that developers have tended to focus on private land for their renewable projects now that we realize how heavily incentivized oil and gas drilling are. But here's hoping that this will turn a page and decentivize fossil fuel generation. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported that the Biden administration plans to announce an increase to the nation's solar energy capacity. Solar energy accounted for 4% of the United States electricity in 2020. And the Biden administration's new target will be for 45% of the nation's electricity to come from solar by 2050. The cost of solar panels has decreased enough in the last decade that solar energy is now the cheapest form of energy in many parts of the country. Now it's just up to developers to make it happen, with the backing of the federal government. The Energy Department stated that the country would need to double the amount of energy installed each year until 2025, and then doubling again by 2030, so this will take a drastic ramp-up in solar installations. But it appears that this investment, government backing, and public support are all kind of converging at once. So, I genuinely believe that we have the right political and socioeconomic climate for something like this to work.
1: Now, Matt, I have a question for you. Why exactly is the land so much cheaper to rent for the, the oil companies compared to these um, solar projects?
0: Great question. And it has everything to do with the gas and oil industry and the lobbyists lining the pockets of a lot of the politicians who make these federal fee schedules. So, The reason that it costs whatever it does to rent or lease land is because that's what the politicians have decided. They are influenced by the people who are saying, we will donate, you know, a million dollars to your campaign and give you $500,000 if you can make sure that the fee schedule for oil drilling is really low and you get enough people who have enough backing from those industries on the committees that are determining these fees.
1: That's what happens. Jeez, that is so like i just feel like i just got woken up yeah like you just i was in bed i was about to go to sleep and you just shook me to my core Nikki, wake up buddy it's time to go to school <laughs> <laughs> let's go ahead and get into the next one so we have a couple of quick hurricane updates thrown here uh so hurricane larry is on track right now to veer away from the united states
0: Yeah. Last couple weeks, we've been talking about, you know, Hurricane Henri, Hurricane Ida, and they were both pretty devastating in their own rights. So here's some good news. Hurricane Larry is on pace to avoid the United States. We got to hope that the trajectory continues. But I mean, the modeling for hurricane paths has been pretty good. So I think, you know, we might get hit by some rainfall, but it looks like we're going to be pretty good on this one. Some bad news, though, Um, the fallout from Hurricane Ida has revealed that several oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico off of Louisiana's coast have appeared, and divers are currently assessing the damage and trying to discover the origin of the spill. Three damaged pipelines have been found near the leak, but the team has not been able to get to the seafloor to find the source yet. So, unfortunate update, and, you know, kind of brings it back to our discussion last week about after the spill, the oil in the ground. is just doing horrible things to Louisiana's coasts. And you got to think that unless this can get contained ASAP, it's just going to contribute further to that.
1: Yeah. We'll, we'll for sure keep an eye on this and keep you guys updated as uh, the news develops. Okay. So moving on to our next quick hit. This one is from CBS News and they reported a powerful earthquake kills at least one person near Acapulco, Mexico. magnitude
0: earthquake struck near Acapulco on Mexico's Pacific coast late Tuesday night. The quake could be felt in Mexico City, which is 230 miles away. So absolutely massive uh, earthquake here. At least eight aftershocks above magnitude four were reported. And dozens of aftershocks were, were reported in total. Mexico's president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, said there were no reports of significant destruction. However, the roofs of some buildings were impacted and gas leaks have been reported. So we're going to keep our eyes on the story and hope that the damage is as limited as first reported and that the one unfortunate death is the only death that gets reported from this one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 7.1 magnitude and, you know, not that much uh, significant destruction is is awesome. Um, it's pretty lucky, okay. all things considered. Absolutely. Okay, so our final quick hit of the week comes from Jason Battelle of National Geographic. And it is titled, These Popular Tuna Species Are No Longer Endangered. Surprising Scientists. More good news. I will let you know there is some bad news
0: mixed in here, but the story is mostly good. Two species of bluefin tuna, one yellowfin, and an albacore tuna are no longer considered critically endangered or have been removed from the IUCN's Endangered Species List altogether. The Endangered Species List is officially titled the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species and commonly called the IUCN Red List or just the Red List if you've heard that phrase before. The IUCN is backed by 16,000 international experts, so it's an extremely reputable organization and the premier source for endangered wildlife studies. The past decade has seen a big push to end overfishing, and tuna have thrived in the same time frame, leading to an unexpectedly fast recovery. Unfortunately, more than a third of the world's sharks and rays are on the red list and face the threat of extinction from overfishing, habitat loss, and climate change. Beth Polidoro a marine biologist at the Arizona State University, sums up a question some people may have when it comes to fishing and overfishing by saying, quote, I think the good news is that sustainable fisheries are possible. We can eat fish sustainably without depleting the population to the point where it's on the road to collapse or extinction, end quote but she also warns that the rising populations do not mean we can go back to overfishing that put them on the red list in the first place. The tuna population was able to recover thanks to reduced catch quotas and better enforcement of those quotas. The latest updates to the red list include some bad news for Komodo dragons, which continue to decline in number with this report because of the risks posed from climate change. Thankfully, the Komodo dragon is not without hope. Komodo dragons live on the Indonesian Sundra Islands and can see up to 30% of their habitat affected by sea level rise in the next 45 years. For this reason, scientists have downgraded them from vulnerable to endangered. Ahmed Arafiandi, who was not involved with the IUCN's listing decision and works as an ecologist with the Indonesian nonprofit The Komodo Survival Program, states, quote, If we talk about climate change and sea level rise, I think most of the species that live on small islands will face the same problem. The reality in the field at the moment is that they are actually doing just fine, end quote. In other words, Komodo dragons are endangered because of habitat loss, but their population is actually doing well at the moment. The Indonesian government is committed to saving the Komodo dragon, so there's reason to believe that, although endangered, the Komodo dragon could be okay in the future thanks to the ongoing work of conservationists, government, and nonprofit organizations.
1: Yeah, and this goes back to the question that we got during our Q and A episode a few weeks back about the future for sushi. And you know what? This article is a perfect example of you know sushi is here to stay. We just got to make sure we don't overfish and screw this thing up. We got to keep it going.
0: Yeah, if we fish sustainably, we can enjoy our spicy tuna rolls while they can enjoy some spicy
1: population growth. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So right now is a good time to take a break. And after the break, our feature story this week is actually a discussion about how climate change impacts public health.
0: Real interesting talk. Make sure you stick around and we will be right back.
1: So Maddie, this weekend I was at a wedding. Big shout out, congratulations to the Mr. and Mrs. Carl and Allison Smelko. Woo! Woo! And God, Matt, I was dancing up a absolute storm. And I you know, I foolishly had my blazer still on. I had my suit jacket still on. And I was just sweating up a gosh damn storm. And there was only one thing that was gonna save me. What'd you have in that uh that pocket? You know what, Matt? I was flaunting it. I was like, I had it in my little, my coat pocket. I was like, guys, check me out. Look at this thing. Look at this thing. It's flashy. It's mashing my tie. I had my Alta on me. Nick had Vala Alta's
0: everyday handkerchief, which is a high performance daily use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.com and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot com and code TPT. Go get them, guys.
1: Valaalta
0: Welcome back to the planet today. As Nick mentioned before the break, our feature story today is a discussion about how climate change impacts public health. This one's actually a very personal topic to me because I wrote a research paper about this in 2017 as my capstone requirement for my undergrad degree. And it was back in the news on Sunday as over 200 health journals called for urgent action on the climate crisis. The research that I did four years ago mainly focused on two main drivers, how public health is impacted by increasing temperatures and increased emissions. We've spoken this summer about how droughts impact public health, but here's a short recap. Higher temperatures lead to more heat exhaustion. There's also more heat-related deaths as a result of the higher temperatures. This leads to higher electricity bills for air conditioning, fans, electricity, basically anything you would use for cooling. More energy consumption related to this cooling is what contributes to those higher bills, and more energy consumption also leads to more carbon emissions. These additional carbon emissions lead to higher temperatures, which is that thing that got us started in the first part of this little recap. So there's this feedback loop that's created where it's hotter, so people want to cool off, so they consume more energy to cool off, and that creates more carbon dioxide. That carbon dioxide leads to the temperatures getting hotter, And the cycle continues as people want to cool off throughout this whole process lower income communities are often left out because it's harder to afford electricity bills when they get too high it's also hard to afford an air conditioning unit sometimes so not only are we talking about more heat related illnesses we're talking about how environmental issues align with societal inequity also on this societal inequity note Increased emissions tend to impact lower income communities and people of color at a higher rate than wealthier communities. As we know, gas and diesel automobiles produce carbon emissions. Communities that live closer to highways, which tend to be poorer communities, because if you can afford to, why would you want to live next to a busy highway? Um. These communities are often at a higher risk for respiratory illnesses than communities that are further away from the heavy car congestion that occurs on highways. This is similar to what we talked about with our after the spill documentary review last week, where Louisianans that lived close to oil spills were more at risk for getting sick. To break it down into something that's easy to understand for me and I hope for some of the listeners, the closer you live to a source of emissions, whether that's coal burning power plants, vehicle emissions oil drilling, etc., the more likely you are to get sick because of the lower air quality as you breathe. This has had an impact on asthma rates in both children and adults. The Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment reported that long-term exposure to air pollution significantly increases the risk of a child developing asthma, and breathing polluted air can trigger asthma attacks more frequently. Climate change impacts asthma rates on three fronts, air pollution, allergies, and wildfires. As the climate warms, the pollen season is getting longer. Wildfire smoke is considered more toxic to children's lungs than air pollution from many other sources, and wildfire season is getting longer as well. Adult asthma rates have also risen in areas that are exposed to more air pollution, so this doesn't just impact children. I was actually diagnosed with allergy-induced asthma in 2018 after never having an issue before. And I definitely get more use out of my inhaler during pollen season than I do during the rest of the year combined. So that was actually what led me to do this research back in the day. Um, it It was when I was first starting to notice, like, hey, I'm coughing a lot more this year. I wonder what's going on. I was actually diagnosed with allergy-induced asthma in 2017 after never having an issue before. And I definitely get more use out of my inhaler during pollen season than I do during the rest of the year combined. So that was actually what kind of motivated me to do this research because I remember it was during my senior year and all throughout the fall season, I just remember coughing a lot. And finally, over winter break, I decided, you know, this is now probably January 2017, I decided to go to the doctor and get my lungs checked out, because at this point, you know, you have a cough for two weeks, it's not the end of the world. If you have a cough for three months, something's up. So that was when I found out that I was allergic to a bunch of different types of pollen and dust and mold and mildew. And anyone who's lived in a college house can tell you there's dust and mold and mildew. <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, I was diagnosed with allergy induced asthma as an adult and I, in doing research about how that happens, just cause I was curious, I found that that was not uncommon and that a lot of adults were getting diagnosed with that. And there was a link to climate change there. So personal connection to something I'm very passionate about. I was like, all right, let's look into this more.
1: Yeah. And I have a quote here from Neela Um, She's an ear, nose, and throat specialist at the George Washington Medical Faculty Associates in Washington, D.C. And she said that she sees many patients with allergic rhinitis or inflammation of the nasal cavity. And she says it used to be that tree pollens were only in spring, grasses were just in the summer, and ragweed was just in the fall. But the timing of those are starting to overlap more and more.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think when I first started taking allergy medicine, I would take it only probably April, May, and that was about it. Now, I mean, I'm taking it in February to make sure I'm ready for
1: March and April, and then I'm taking it all the way through to, like, October, so... <laughs> it's, like pre- it's like pre-dosing Pepto-Bismol when you know you're about to have, like, a bunch of wings.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's... I'm, I'm getting my, uh, my system primed and ready to go for allergy season, and I'll tell you what, Nick, it still doesn't always work. I have those... HEI days all the time. So (laughs) pollen season is getting worse, man. (laughs)
1: Yeah, seriously.
0: Um, so to get into the story that we led with here, PA media published a story in the guardian on September 5th titled more than 200 health journals call for an urgent action on climate crisis. Um, if anyone wants to read it, that's what you can Google and we can also provide a link in the show notes. The article explained that the health journals across the world are publishing an editorial that will call on world leaders to take emergency action on climate change to protect public health. The British Medical Journal stated that this is the first time that so many publications have collaborated to make the same statement. So that should show just how serious climate change is for not just the natural environment, but for public health. This is going to be published in full before the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, Scotland this November, So this will be another topic of discussion at that UN climate meeting. A major quote from the publication that I would like to discuss here is the science is unequivocal. A global increase of 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average and the continued loss of biodiversity risk catastrophic harm to health that will be impossible to reverse. We've talked about how climate change will be irreversible if we don't take it seriously, But this publication is important because some people are more motivated by how people will be impacted than they are by the earth. And this says that people will be impacted severely.
1: Yeah, I mean, coming off a year where we had the pandemic literally terrorize, basically, um, the people of this earth and, you know, take people away from their families and, you know, lose Family members and stuff like that. Like this is no different. You know, it's it's the climate. It's affecting everyone, and it it doesn't care about who you are. You know, what you do or anything like that. It's not taking any of that into consideration. It's just going to affect everyone.
0: Yeah, really good point. And I forget who said this, or honestly, I might have just seen it on a sign um, at one of the climate marches. But there, there's a quote that kind of stands out to me, and it's climate change has no borders. Yeah. Like this is going to impact all of us. It's a global problem that requires global solutions. And, you know, that's, that's similar to the COVID-19 pandemic where it's affecting all of us and it requires a global solution. So another topic of discussion before the COP26 meeting is global inequity. Certain activists have been calling for the meeting to be delayed, stating that because of the COVID-19 pandemic, certain world leaders will be unable to attend the talks. Unfortunately, the majority of those unable to attend will be from countries that will be impacted the soonest and the most by climate change, such as small island nations. The public health editorial has a quote stating, despite the world's necessary preoccupation with COVID-19, We cannot wait for the pandemic to pass to rapidly reduce emissions. Dr. Fiona Godley, the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, and also one of the co-authors of the editorial, said health professionals have been on the front line of the COVID-19 crisis, and they are united in warning that going above 1.5 degrees Celsius and allowing the continued destruction of nature will bring the next far deadlier crisis. Victoria Jaggard of National Geographic highlighted the writers of the editorial stating many governments met the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic with unprecedented funding. The environmental crisis demands a similar emergency response. Jaggard also noted that higher temperatures mean climate zones are changing. This can cause tropical diseases, including those carried by mosquitoes, to move into higher latitudes, threatening even more people with ailments such as Dengue fever, malaria, Zika, and valley fever. So as the earth gets warmer and as the tropical regions extend from the equator and start to get further north and further south, mosquitoes are going to be able to thrive. And they're going to bring with them all those diseases that we typically don't have to worry about unless you're in those zones. Droughts are also making crops harder to grow and less nutritious while floods create sitting water that can accumulate bacteria. In other words, the climate crisis is also a public health crisis, and it's one that we can fix before it gets to be
1: unmanageable. Yeah, I thought the the quote that you brought up by Victoria Jaggard is, is super, super appropriate. Like it's it's like a pandemic, but it's just going to be over a longer period of time. And it's not on people's front doorsteps right now. So they can kind of just put it off on the wayside and continue to spew oil into the Gulf or, you know, pollute the, the air. But we have to take action. That's the main purpose of this podcast. It's the main purpose of of what we're doing here.
0: Yeah, and that's a really good point you brought up about it not being on a lot of people's front doorsteps. And, you know, it, it's kind of one of the challenges of climate change mitigation is that for the longest time, it was kind of this abstract idea where we're talking about, you know, in 1990, in 2000, in 2005, that, hey, our grandchildren are going to have to worry about this. Let's leave a better earth for our grandchildren. And now we're at the point where, like, it's here and it might yeah. not be on our doorsteps, but it's definitely at the base of our driveways yeah. and it's ready to come in. So I don't know, like we've had this, this problem that's always been a future problem. And that problem for future us is now a problem for us. So really good point. And one that I think, I, I think that we're like at the point now where enough people are, are ready to mobilize and ready to make this happen where we'll actually see some progress. And I'm I'm really hopeful about that COP26 meeting in November. And look, if it gets delayed, I understand that we want everyone there, but I also worry that we don't have time. And the sooner we can get everybody moving and get everybody
1: acting, the better for a global solution like this. Should we do like a live event like, um, I don't know what we would do, but like, we were like in a room together, just watching the cop 26. No, it's like, it's going to be like eight hours a day
0: for like three days. Oh, uh, <laughs> damn. If, if it was, if it was like a three hour thing, I'd be like, yes, we're going to go, we're going to make a YouTube channel. We're going go to go YouTube live and we're going to chat so with people. Sick. Dude, we could do like nightly Instagram, just like question and answer from people. But, um, No, we definitely can't
1: commit (laughs) unless we quit our jobs. We can quit our jobs, though. We can and then do it. We could save up our PTO and be like, hey, I need to watch something
0: on TV for the next three (laughs) days straight. I'll I'll be back. (laughs) All right, guys, enjoy your vacation. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be sick. Yeah, just not not the right time commitment right now. (laughs) We'll catch up. Yeah, we'll catch up with everyone after each day's discussion, though. And that's that's a lot more manageable. Yeah. For sure. If you're interested in reading the editorial, once it's published, it's going to appear in the British Medical Journal, the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, the East African Medical Journal, the Chinese Science Bulletin, the National Medical Journal of India, the Medical Journal of Australia and 50 British Medical Journal specialist journals, including BMJ Global Health and Thorax. So... Just so everyone is aware, the reason we listed all the different publications is to show, again, this is an international community of 200 publications all coming together and saying,
1: we all agree on this. That's awesome. I wish my family could be so set on one thing, too. This is so pragmatic. (laughs) All right, that'll do it for
0: this week's episode of TPT. Next week, Nick and I will be back in the studio for some of the quick hits that you love from us, and an interview with my friend Kristen Pruitt to talk about her time working at Yellowstone National Park, plant-based cooking, and more. Until that episode drops, you can keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at planettodaypod or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. We would also really appreciate if you could share the show with a friend. We love getting new listeners and engaging with us on our social media posts helps get some new eyes on the show. And once we get some new eyes on the show, hopefully we get some new ears on the show. Aside from that, if you have any questions you want answered, send them in. If you see a story you want us to cover, send that too. If you have a guest you'd like for us to have on, let us know and we can try to make it happen. We have some big guests lined up for the next couple months and one that we're working on that I do not want to give away because I don't know if it'll happen. But look, we are trying here to make this show as fun as possible for you to listen to. Just buckle up. Everyone buckle up. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you listen on Google or Spotify or Stitcher or TuneIn, the reviews on Apple really help the show grow the most. If you don't feel like the show is worth five stars, that's okay too, but the best way to let us know that is by giving us that five-star rating and then for your review, leave a suggestion as to how to make the show better. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We're co-hosted and produced by the incredibly talented Nick Janusa, who also does the music for every single show.
1: Nick, where can our listeners hear more from you? Matt, I'm once again taking my allotted time to shout out a hashtag that is near and dear to my heart. It is hashtag cancelthewillowproject.com. Let's go. I'm I'm working on the domain. (laughs) Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend,
0: everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace.